Welcome to Leadership Insights, a podcast produced for the University of Southern Queensland's Master of Business Administration. I'm Dr. Daniel Maddock, a digital pedagogy and media specialist and part of the MBA design team. In this podcast, we talk to leaders from a variety of industries about what it means to lead, why their leadership identities matter, and how they leverage their leadership identities for career and business success. Some of these interviews were recorded via the internet, so please keep this in mind as you listen to this episode. This episode tackles the theoretical foundations of leadership, including the leadership styles of adaptive leadership, collaborative leadership, and transformational leadership. We'll be talking to three different leaders for this episode. Tracy Dobby, President of the Warwick Chamber of Commerce, John Minns, former CEO of the Heritage Bank, and Leanne Coddington, CEO of Tourism Events Queensland. Nia Yari Giam, Jaganba na Gayabu, Yarrawa Peoples, Nia Toowoomba. This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Giyabul and Yarrawa peoples in a place called Toowoomba. From a background of over 25 years of service with the Australian Army to a position in foreign affairs and trade to 14 years in the private sector to Mayor of Southern Downs Regional Council, Tracy Dobby has experienced leadership in many different ways. Tracy has recently taken on the position of President of the Warwick Chamber of Commerce and has already spent considerable time listening to local business owners from across the region. Her focus for the Chamber is their strategic plan with an emphasis on advocating, innovating, collaborating and educating. Tracy Dobby, thanks for coming to the show. Thanks very much. Tracy, today we're going to be talking about adaptive leadership. It's a practice of leadership that helps mobilise members of an organisation to adapt to significant change. And we've certainly seen that um, this year with the COVID-19 crisis. But first, I want to know a little bit more about you. Can you take me back to how you started um, with your career and how that led to where you are now? Well, I joined the Army in 1977, which is a long time ago (laughs) when you think about it. As you said, almost a quarter of a century in the Army. And uh, I progressed through the ranks. My final appointment was a as the Lieutenant Colonel, as a commanding officer of the 1st Recruit Training Battalion. And during those 25 years, I did everything you could possibly do in the Army. I learned a lot about leadership. I learned a lot about management. I learned a lot about people. I decided to leave the the Army and um, find out what life was like out in the private sector, and and I did that. But I found that at heart, I am probably more a public servant, and uh, so went back and joined Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and I had, um, you know, a very enjoyable time there. And I've, throughout most of that time, I've had a rural property, a beef cattle property in New South Wales initially. And then my husband and I moved and bought a property in South Australia. And now we have a property in, in Queensland. You learn a lot about what you are and aren't capable of when you've got working dogs uh, and cattle because yes. they never do what you want. <laughs> <laughs> so chest your patience. And, and then I stood for mayor in my local community back in my hometown, having been away for some 40 years with my wow. career in Australia and overseas. And as I said, I, I think I'm more of a public servant than a private sector person. So my term as mayor, and uh, I, I'm still someone who wants to give back to my community, which is why I'm now the president of the Warwick Chamber of Commerce, looking at how we get businesses to to look ahead, think ahead. There's no doubt our region here in southeast Queensland has been impacted severely these last few years uh, due to natural phenomena like fires, floods, lack of water. 
and now, of course, um, something of an unnatural phenomenon, which is COVID-19, and businesses have had to adapt in order to survive. Human beings have had to adapt in order to survive, and that's the sort of thing that we're doing with the Chamber. How do you keep your feet on the ground now but get ready for the future? There's a lot of adapting going on there. How would you define adaptive leadership? Many years ago, there was a movie starring Clint Eastwood called Heartbreak Ridge. Oh, yes. And I'm a bit of a Clint Eastwood yes. fan. And, you know, they're in this bit of a situation. He says his his team of soldiers will overcome it because they improvise, adapt and overcome. Improvise, adapt and overcome. And so I've, you know, spent the last 40-odd years uh, abiding by those three words, improvise, adapt and overcome. And I think that's what adaptive leadership is. It's about understanding yourself, understanding the people that you are working with, understanding what needs to be done to achieve the outcomes that you agree to achieve, and then you improvise, you adapt and you overcome to achieve those. How do you improvise and adapt without failing? Oh, you fail. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry. You know, I I think in my um, well over 40 years in the workforce, um, I've had many failures, but I've had many achievements as well. And, you know, you often hear people say they learn more from their failures than they do by their achievements. That's absolutely right. But if you don't try, you don't know, do you? And I think that's the thing about adaptive leadership, about an adaptive leader. You're prepared to have a go. You can't sit all the time and do nothing. You know, I I remember many years ago working for someone who said to me that they didn't like to have to make a decision. I'm not in that game. I think that you have to be prepared to make decisions. You've got to back yourself. You've got to back your team, understanding the risks that are involved. But at the same time, you've got to have the guts to be able to say, look, I was wrong. There's new information available now. We need to adapt what we're doing in order to take that into account and move in a slightly different direction. So just part of being life, but being, yeah. You you talked about the adaptation that businesses in that Warwick area have had to do. Um, And of course, you're president of the Warwick Chamber of Commerce. These droughts and floods and bushfires and COVID-19, how have those businesses adapted? What does it actually look like in practice? What are the things that they had to do? First thing they do is overcome their fear and their shock. And there's no better example of that in COVID-19. You know, things like drought come on slowly. Bushfires are quite fast, but you still are anticipating it. The same with floods. They're fast, but you expect it. COVID-19 was unexpected. And I guess that the businesses that are front of mind for me, the ones that have adapted so quickly are the restaurants and the cafes who immediately turned to takeaway service rather than sit-in service, and they kept themselves alive. And they've totally reconfigured their layout inside their cafes. They've changed their menus. They've changed their staffing. They've changed their packaging. They've changed everything. Their online presence has become really strong now where it wasn't before. Yet I know those business owners personally, and I know the the shock that they encountered those first few days on how are they going to cope? How are they going to be able to pay their bills? What are they going to do with their staff? Because for many of them, they are owner operators and they're employing young people and it really was quite a worry for them. But then when you get over that initial shock and you go, okay, I can do this, and then you go ahead and do it. And, and that's what improvising, adapting and overcoming is about. And we can all do it. It doesn't matter what our age is or even what our experience. It's just, you know, that that fright or flight response that we um, have when we're first confronted with something that is a shock to us. How do you get over that? And it's backing yourself and taking a risk. 
So what is that mindset that the leader has to have and maybe even the broader employee base? What mindset do they have to have to be able to flex, to be adaptive? I think it's about trust and confidence. It's about having confidence in your own ability to say, okay, I'm at this T intersection, I'm going to go right, I'm going to back myself to go right, but knowing that if it doesn't work out, we can still go right at the next T intersection. You know, it's having that confidence in yourself that you can keep going forward. And it's having trust in the people that you work with, you know, in your suppliers, in your customers, trust that you have built a reputation that they will back you. And I think that's what adaptive leadership is about. An adaptive leader is someone who has built trust around them. Their their staff, um, their co-workers, their own managers know that the person they see is the person that they've got. You know, in my working life, I've come across people who try to pretend to be something else and it's very transparent, mm. very transparent. So it's about being yourself, being you, you know, your core personality, but having aspects of your personality that you can rely on to get you through situations, but they're not averse to your personality or adverse to your personality. They're things that you have built and adapted. Is adaptive leadership something that can't be done in the armed forces then? Oh, no. Adaptive leadership is what the armed forces is all about. Really? Yeah. I know it seems quite odd to say that because we have this impression of the military as being very command and control oriented and very strict, but that's not what it's about. You know, whether you're a soldier who has gone through recruit training, whether you're an officer who has gone through officer training, you build a network around you of men and women that you trust for the rest of your time in the military. And they may not ever be in your chain of command again, but you will always interact with those people, asking their opinion because you know them and they know you, asking their opinion, um, getting ideas from them. And that's the way we work. We all work in a, a whole networked environment. The chain of command is there and the chain of command is there for a purpose. And it's there for a purpose so that everybody knows when push comes to shove, the person who's giving the order is giving the order and you must obey. But to get to that point, to give the order, you as a commander need to be able to trust the people you're working with and they need to have confidence in you that they know that you know what you're doing. So you build that along the way. You don't just, don't just give an order on, on day one, although I have met people who are like that, <laughs> believe me. I have worked with them myself. I remember very clearly as a young officer, my officer commanding at the time, a major, told me that I um, didn't display strong leadership skills because my soldiers did what I asked them to do rather than what I ordered them to do. Oh. <laughs> and to me, it was asking. That was the order. They knew yes. that what I was asking to do was an order, yes. but they were doing and carrying out that order in a compliant way, not in a resentful way. Because they were on board with you. They were on so, board. We, yeah. You know, we'd all got our hands dirty and we knew what we needed to do. Yes. So all I had to do was ask. I sometimes didn't even have to ask. They knew what needed to be done. It's interesting because what you're saying resonates outside of the armed forces. There are bosses, I'm sure we've all known, all the listeners have known, bosses who give commands on day one and say this is how it's going to be and they don't ask the employees if they have um, an opinion on maybe how it would work? The two big differences I noticed on leaving the military was just your outward appearance. So in the military, for example, and we do it throughout businesses, everywhere you go, people wear a uniform of one sort or another. Mm. In the military, on site, someone knew who you were, what your credentials were, what qualifications you had, just by the insignia you wore on your uniform. 
that was the biggest difference. So when you when you're in the private sector, unless you're within an organisation, you don't know who's who in another organisation. So you have to be wary initially uh, on meeting people about who they are and what their level of authority is, if you like. That was the first thing. Second thing I noticed was communication. In the military, everybody uses the same language. And you would find here at the university, everybody uses the same language. And often you speak in colloquialisms or idioms that people outside have got no idea what you're talking about. I also, in the military, um, because there is no lateral recruiting, everyone along the way understands what every simple word means, like the colour green. Everyone knows what the colour green is. You don't have to give detailed explanations. When I joined the private sector, I found that I had to give those detailed explanations in asking people to do things. I could no longer take it on trust that the person I was asking to do something would implicitly know what I wanted them to do. So I found within a very short time, weeks of moving into the private sector, that I had to really give explanations of what I wanted in terms of the quality I wanted, uh, what the risks might be, the time frame by what I, when I wanted something finished, come back and let me know if you run into any snags. So I had to adapt into the private sector to be able to get the same outcomes that I would just have assumed I would get in that more um, strict environment. When you moved into that private sector, what impact did you find being an adaptive leader had on the organisations that you worked for? A couple of things. Uh, Firstly, I found the organisation that I was in was very focused on the day-to-day without thinking about the impacts that the day-to-day would have on the future. And one of the things that I really pride myself on is my ability to look to the future and say, this is where we want to be in one year, two years, three years' time. That's strategic thinking. That's strategic thinking. And this is what we've got to be doing today. Yes, every day we're confronted by problems, but we can't spend all of our time focusing on those problems and solving those problems without thinking about the implications of the future. It's almost like saying, I'm going to spend every dollar I've got in my budget solving the issues today and I'm not putting anything toward forward planning for asset management or, you know, replacement of of equipment or anything like that. You have to be doing both at the same time. And that's one of the things about, to me, leadership is about doing both of those things, looking to the future while dealing with the day-to-day issues. How do you plan for an uncertain future, as, as we've seen? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things I learned in the military is no plan ever gets past the first bullet. <laughs> but if you haven't got a plan then you don't have all your ducks lined up in one place, do you? Yes. And the thing that I found is that something will almost always go wrong, unforeseen risk. There is always some degree of unforeseen risk. But if you have taken care of all of the major risks by putting in place treatment measures, then you will have confidence to say, okay, I've got nine of 10 things taken care of here. I can trust people around me to do what I expect of them. There's just this one issue I've got to focus on at the moment. And once again, going back to my military time, but I did see this quite a lot in the private sector as well. The military has a term called commander's intent. What it means is that at every level up the chain of command, everybody knows what everybody's expectations are. So that if communication breaks down and you know, you might lose a troop off to one side or something. And, you know, the Battle of Long Tan fought in Vietnam is the classic example of understanding commander's intent. Everybody knew what everybody else would do in those circumstances. So then you can get on and take care of the business that's in front of you. And I saw that in the private sector and certainly my time as mayor of the Southern Downs. I made sure that all the councillors, all the staff 
knew what my intent was. We were aiming for, um, you know, a strategic plan called Shaping Southern Downs that we developed and everything we did in council was focused on achieving short-term steps to achieve those long-term goals. So everybody's on board with you. They understand that goal and that goal is, is often a short statement but does it take a long time to get everybody on board and understand the intricacies of that statement? I don't think you ever get everybody on board. Right. I think that that's probably a bit of a, f- a fallacy because mm. every person that is in a team, every person that's in the workplace, every person that's in the organisation is there for different reasons. And you as a leader need to understand and respect that. People will have different ways of dealing with the situation. People have different personalities. You know, you'll have people who have come to work for enjoyment. You have people who've come to work to escape from their home life. (laughs) You'll have people who are dedicated careerists and they're just head down all the time and they won't always be on board with what you want. But it's about being able to get those people to contribute sufficiently that you achieve the overall organisational aims. You know, I hear people say they're going to put in 110% and 100% and I always think, (laughs) ah, don't be silly. No one could do that. Yes. You you know, if everybody's putting in an average of about 75% across the board, then you're probably going to get (laughs) a good outcome. Yes. (laughs) Is adaptive leadership always the right way to go? Are, Are there situations where you should avoid adaptive leadership? I think going back to the military example we were talking about before is um, probably key here. There are times when you do have to be a little bit dictatorial. Mm. There, there are circumstances when that's the case. And I know I have done that in the private sector and I know, um, you know I've had to um, ask someone to leave the organisation, which is always a really difficult thing to do when you just realise that the person's not meant to be there and, and no matter what you've tried, it just hasn't worked. That's a really difficult thing to do for for yourself and for that person. And that's where you have to say, well, maybe that is another example of adaptive leadership though, because you're probably saying, look, we've got to get rid of this person for the good of the overall team yes, and the good of the overall organisation and and the outcomes we want to achieve. You know, the narrow silo there of when you're dealing with that person, then you're going to have to be, you know, you're probably not going to discuss that with everyone. You're probably not going to have everyone on board and you just have to make the hard decision. And I think a, a good leader is able to do that, knowing that they can deal with the consequences that they themselves emotionally will feel as a result of that and, and that will impact the organisation down the track. How would you sum up the value of adaptive leadership? If, if you had to sell you know, adaptive leadership to our students in this program? I think um, it is really teamwork at its highest level. If you have got a a good team of people that are working well together and you as their leader are providing them with direction and guidance, that to me is adaptive leadership. If if you trust them and they trust you and they can come to you and say, look, boss, this isn't going the way that we planned. How are we going to get out of this? You know, you have people coming to you with suggestions, not being frightened to put forward their ideas. You have people coming forward saying that something's not working and maybe we should do this in a different way. And to me, that's what adaptive leadership, it is true teamwork. It's having no one in the team who is fearful of putting forward their ideas or, you know, confident that even though they may not be putting in 100%, they're still pulling their weight. So you don't lead in a vacuum in that sense. Everybody's con- contributing to a, to a sort of leading effort. Yeah, that's what adaptive leadership is to me. It, it's about a leader who can get people to willingly 
do what they want them to do. What's the best experience you've you've had of that in your career? I guess um, there's probably, I can give you three examples that come to mind. I remember as a young platoon commander in the military, in the army, having a wonderful team, all men, I was the only woman in that team, having a, a wonderful team of men who, um, you know, when we went bush, we would get out of our trucks and they would just set everything up. I wouldn't need to say a word because we all knew what we had to do. We all had our role and that was a very warm feeling to know that they trusted you and you trusted them and they are all still my friends today. Another example in the private sector was a very similar thing. You know, I remember this is more a one-on-one situation where one of the girls who worked for me wasn't feeling particularly well. I know we don't operate like this under COVID-19 anymore. If we're not well, we, we don't come to work. But back then, you know, I remember her coming into work and she wasn't very well. And she said to me, look, I know I'm not well, but you needed me here today. And I thought that's someone who is seeing the bigger picture of the contribution they have in an, in an organisation. And then in my, my role as mayor, you know, spending quite a lot of time in the first six months of our term, working with the councillors so that they all understood the bigger picture. Everyone's elected independently and everyone will have issues they pursue in their own way. But at the end of the day, regardless of um, who's voted for or against something, we all stand behind the decision because we know that for the region, for the organisation, it is the best foot forward during that time. When the elections are on, you can do what you like. But leading in, we had a um, you know a strong concerted front. Tracy, that was a great discussion on adaptive leadership. Thank you for coming on this episode of the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. John Minns joined the Heritage Bank in 1993 as the head of internal audit, but went on to fulfil a number of managerial roles at the organisation before becoming the CEO in 2003. After 12 years as the CEO, John has recently stepped down from the position to spend his time supporting charitable and community interests. He holds positions with Australia's CEO Challenge, Downlands College and the Darling Downs Westmorton Primary Health Network. John Minns, thanks for coming on the show. You're very welcome. If I could, though, make a few um, through cor- corrections, I need to look at my LinkedIn and uh, do some updates to some of the roles that uh, you mentioned about. But uh, no, I'd love to be here and, and uh, just to fill out that that uh, that intro in terms of where I uh, currently have leadership roles. I do have the non-executive <laughs> positions at RACQ. I hold the director positions on what is RACQ Limited, the RACQ Insurance and RACQ Bank Boards. I'm in my fifth year at RACQ and I also chair all of the RACQ audit committees. Uh, it, as you know, is a mutual base in Queensland, has about 1.8 million members. Very similar in terms of culture and values to what I experienced at, at Heritage Bank. So it's a nice fit for me at the moment. I also hold the role of chair of the charity called Twumba Together which is a charity dedicated to raising awareness of domestic violence and promoting safe, respectful relationships. And I've been in that role since 2015. That sounds fantastic. You must get a lot of joy out of being involved with those organisations at this time in your career now. It certainly is. Uh, Actually, the way the RACQ worked was that when I retired from Heritage Bank in 2015, ideally the role of the Southwest Zone Director on RACQ came up some months later 
So I applied for it and I joined the RACQ group in 2016 and it just gave me an opportunity to continue my leadership contribution in an organisation which I said is is a mutual-like heritage. It has really good values and a really good culture and aligns with my personal values. So, uh, But little did I know that at the first board meeting after I arrived, the board decided to proceed with a merger with what was called Queensland Teachers Mutual Bank. So as it turns out, my experience with member-based financial services actually gave me some domain experience and knowledge on the RACQ board. So it worked out really well for all of us. Tell me about that, John. How do you lead in the organisations that you're involved with now? It's interesting. The, um, the, The topic that we tend to talk about now is collaborative leadership. But I didn't really call it that at the time. Um, I'm sorry if that disappoints, but I led the way I felt that I needed to lead for the environment that I was in, for the person that I am. And as it turns out, it's it, uh, it's a, a close representation of collaborative leadership. So uh, I'm a bit allergic to an authoritarian style and authoritarian leadership. So it was very much around encompassing the potential capacity and capability of the whole organization to understand, to start with what is needed strategically and tactically, but also to get work done, to execute things. I'm a firmer believe, believer that I'm, I do not know it all. A CEO does not know it all. Every leader does not know it all. Some of the times those people are the smartest people in the room, sometimes they're not. And it's really about making sure that you tap into the potential and the capabilities of other people to make the the best leadership decisions. So I'd probably call myself an authentic leader. At the time, I did a lot of walking around the organization at Heritage Bank. It was tapping into people, uh, setting up relationships. It's a style of, of leadership that I really liked. It was hard work because that style of authentic leadership, which um, aligns to collaborative leadership, you can't put it on. You can't fake it. Anyone who, who tries to do that is is identified very quickly because people out there are smart. As it turned out, uh, my personality set, my values set aligned very much with a members-based, a people's-based uh, culture and organization. So for me, that worked out really well. I was able to fortunately inherit a lot of really good senior executives and recruit some others. We had a really good learning organization approach within the organization. So we were continually developing people and they appreciate that. I'm a firm believer that there is greatness in all people. And one of my favorite quotes was that um, the leadership, every person is a leadership and every moment is a leadership moment. So it was very much about developing the executive team and having that wash through the organization through a culture that we called at the time people first. And it was about a focus on people, on communities through really good engaged people. So that was uh, the way I did things at Heritage Bank when you're a CEO uh, at RECQ. Interestingly, it's a very similar situation, but I see that leadership role through the prism or the lens of a non-executive director where you can't get that operationally involved. But uh, actually at RECQ, there are opportunities um, where directors and the board are exposed to the organisation culturally, whether it be in workplace health and safety, ride-alongs in high-speed rescue, car rescue situations. It's a very similar style of leadership that has been fostered at RECQ and that the team the, the, the directors at RECQ uh, use uh, to do their governance role. 
So today we're talking about collaborative leadership, which, you know, within the MBA, we're defining as a leadership style where the leader focuses on building relationships, as you've discussed, John, dealing with conflict in a constructive manner, sharing control, and, and largely engaging with the collective knowledge, as, as you were suggesting, that the CEO doesn't know everything. So engaging with that collective knowledge and capabilities across um, the organisation. But what does that look like, John, in, in practice? To start with, I define leadership as that inspiring a team towards clearly defined goals and objectives with a focus on how every team member can contribute to both the goals and the outcomes of the team. Uh, And the collaboration there really is about a dedication to openness in that process, both up front in terms of developing strategies and tactics through execution and through satisfying strategic outcomes, openness and inclusivity. So just in terms of how it might work uh, um, in the in the past, just to take an example, that openness to all relevant data that we might consider as appropriate in forging a future and forging the next 12 months future and the five-year future uh, and the inclusivity in terms of participation in that strategic design is really important. So we, we used quite a lot of internal trend analysis. We were born with a single silo database of business information. We didn't have disparate uh, computer systems. We had an advantage there at Heritage Bank. That internal trend analysis needed to be supported by good business anal- in intelligence analysis um, capabilities. We learned from our partners. We included partners. Um, we don't no organization does it all. I think one of the learnings in more recent years is to decide what you do internally and what you partner with to achieve outcomes. We used independent risk advisors. And I think one of the important things about linking strategy and risk is that you can tap into capabilities out there who are very specifically employed to provide really good, proactive, future-looking risk advice. And I'm not talking risk about the things that might knock you over or cause an erosion of your business value. It's also about strategic opportunities that come through that analysis, that proactive analysis of risk. We had megatrend analysis from external providers, regulators, strategic stakeholders, industry bodies, broker partners. A lot of the, um, the, the loan applications came through mortgage brokers. So that they were seen as, as key partners and they were brought along in the process of how we developed strategy. They were an important part of it because someone introduced through a broker partner then came within the heritage brand and the way of dealing with people and, and the people first culture. We listened to the voice of the customer. We had staff feedback. Really, it's about that openness and inclusivity in terms of building that rich database of what is happening, where are we at now, what are the possibilities that within our strengths that we might be able to achieve in terms of opportunities, what are the things we really need to plan for now that might cause a problem in the future. There was a dedication to strategy development resources. You can't just take, you know, people in other positions and part-time develop strategies and develop how you how you develop the, the future. There's also a dedication to a continuous cycle for strategy. For instance, let's take RACQ. There are strategy meetings held in December, following that up in March. We have that leading through to annual planning and budget processes in May and June, then we're back to the strategy session in August. 
So it's, you don't create a strategy and walk away from it. And therefore, there's a dedication to the communication framework for all those partners who participated in developing the strategy to be fed back. What did we do with the input? How did it create the next five-year strategic plan? What is your specific involvement in helping us achieve that? So the communications framework is continuous. You need to invest in that in so many different ways. Uh, Back at Heritage Bank, we did six monthly roadshows. So we were constantly talking to as many staff as we could about what they were experiencing, what did our members want? How do we build that into a business model that we become better than some of the much bigger banks that we were competing against? So um, there's other ways as well. I guess the invent, the advent of COVID uh, gave us a way of a different way of working. So there are all different virtual methods now to achieve that flow of communication. I'm going to talk about communication. I'm not talking about the CEO authoritatively talking from the pulpit. It's about two-way uh, communication, feeding back what was listened to and doing something about it. We had a uh, at Heritage Bank a, a really strong dedication to including people and culture as a foundation stone within the, the strategic plan. That didn't it wasn't an afterthought. Therefore, we built in how do we build and nurture a culture where people are engaged, they are contributed, and we get the most out of them. So that's an important part. And all those things are about how you collaboratively develop the strategy. There's a range of things you can do also to ensure that the execution of that strategy is done in a collaborative way as well. So you're saying that collaborative leadership happens within the organisation between you and staff and, and staff and, and their colleagues, but also externally with the partnering organisations that you work with? Correct. It's not as if you can cauterize those external partners and providers and stakeholders and say that we're going to do all that we need to do internally within our organization to become optim to have optimal performance uh, because a lot of organizations they um, you know they're already dealing in a competitive environment so they need to find a way to create a competitive advantage for mutuals like um, Heritage Bank and RECQ, they need to find ways to serve the members better because they, you know, in, in the banking world, the big four bank, you know, they're hundreds times the size of the, the smaller credit unions and mutual banks. So there needs to be a way of divining and defining and then executing the way that we, we serve members into the future. You can't just do that internally. There, there is so much richness of input up front from outside in terms of what the options might be, but also in the execution of those options. So it is definitely not just an internal focus, but how do you manage the external contribution in a collaborative, in a leadership environment? What are those particular characteristics that you have to apply, if you had to summarise them, to be a collaborative leader? Yes, uh, there are some really important personal characteristics and mindsets that not only uh, the CEO needs to have, I believe, but every person who has a leadership role within an organisation. And the first is that you need to be really self-aware. You need to understand what your, your strong points are and where you might have some gaps. So you need to have some balance uh, around that understanding and some positive self-esteem to understand that you don't know it all and therefore you are reliant on other entities within the organization to fill those gaps. Those gaps are filled by others. So a good collaborative leader will develop others. They will inspire others. 
they will understand others, they will relate to others very well, um, and they will delegate to others. And they should also be involved in ensuring that those people are as good as they can be. So that development cycle is really important. Uh, you need to be an authentic leader. So in doing that in very much a people-based uh, leadership style, you need to walk the talk. You need to do it all the time. Uh, so if there is a you know the gap in that particular way that you lead, uh, people will notice. And you need to, I believe, sorry, demand that, and that demands a strong word, of the leadership team and the people within the organization. Because if the leadership goes off the rail, then you can lose the organization. You can damage the culture and damage the results. You need to be able to encourage trust because, by the way, you're, you're providing span of control and you're delegating and you're allowing people to be as good as they can be. So you need to be able to encourage trust and to be trustworthy. You need to be a strong communicator, both one-to-one and one-to-many. And the most important thing about communication is not speaking but listening. So that communication style is really important. You need to have the courage to trust. You need to have the courage to lean into strategic risk management and take those risk opportunities. Uh, You need to have the trust to delegate. That whole bunch of issues are wrapped up around how you deal with people and how you get the best out of them. So there's, uh, apart from trust, you need to be able to develop relationships. And that's something which you need to put energy into and to make sure you do it as much as possible, both for relationships inside the organization, but outside the organization as well. One of the important things that I did at Heritage Bank was to ensure that we had constructive conflict. The worst thing you can do in any organization is to have a a bunch of gray-suited accountants all providing the same sort of input to a a discussion or to a topic. So I tried to ensure that we had people with different personality styles, with different backgrounds, introverts versus extroverts, uh, people who can play the, the black hat and challenge. And it's important to make sure that you construct that team and be aware of what you need to do to set up that constructive conflict. But the CEO and uh, the the leader of a team needs to be a strong moderator to ensure that that constructive conflict doesn't get out of control, that it is constructive. You need to ensure that you have aligned values. And from my perspective, it's about integrity, excellence, and respect. Doing the right thing, focusing on how you can do things better, and respecting others for that rich diverseness, diversity that comes to a team there. And so important that respect is important. And lastly, you need to be decisive on the operating model, on the how you manage accountabilities and how you manage responsibilities. It's not just a free-for-all in, an, in a collaborative leadership framework. There needs to be decisiveness built into that to ensure that you harness those benefits. John, that all sounds very scary to me. There's a lot of trust that you're giving to other people and there seems to me a lot of possibility for something to go wrong. Can collaborative leadership have negative impacts on the organisation? I think there are both positives and I've covered most of those, um, but there are also some negative ones as well. For instance, you, you tend to have a less formal or hierarchical structure and traditionally that's been a way of the flow of information up and down within an organisation. But um, we've proven and many organizations have proven that you don't need to have those hierarchies to be able to do good communication. So it really comes down to clarity of communication about a person's responsibilities, uh, 
about their accountabilities, uh, about how they feedback information because collaborative leadership is not about throwing away responsibility. It's about sharing it. So there is also a fair amount of work going into the net, the framework, the matrix for providing that feedback. You need to make sure that you're providing the feedback, the, the, the control to the right people. I think you can set people up to fail, and, but you can do that in any organization, in any leadership style. So you need to make sure that you know you um, you have really good conversations, one to one performance conversations about people's strengths and and uh, and the gaps and what we do within an organization to make sure you fill those gaps. So that fits back into the developing of the culture. Because if you set someone up to fail without thinking about how you support them, uh, then you're going to break the culture down as well. So there's a lot of focus that needs to go on culture. Uh, there are some areas where uh, a less consultative approach may be necessary. We might cover them later. But uh, so, for instance, within a banking and insurance environment, the regulatory environment is very much since the Royal Commission around Bear and Far, the, the bank executive accountability regime and the financial accountability regime, which is very much about having specific accountabilities uh, and those people held within an organization for ensuring that accountabilities um, are, are fulfilled. But just because an accountability exists with a person who may be the CEO or the chief retail officer doesn't mean that the responsibilities can't be provided and the, the span of control increased. You cannot delegate account accountability. You can delegate responsibility. Uh, I still think there are times when you need domain experts around the chief risk officer, chief financial officer, chief marketing officer, but they still need to fit within a collaborative leadership framework where the marketing person is listening to the organization and is hearing the feedback and is then targeting how they invest their time in a collaborative approach. So the, there are some negatives, but only when you don't manage the potential issues that come with leadership of any style. Have you had to adopt a different style or, or, or even be more or less collaborative in different situations, say, with RACQ versus Heritage or, or for instance, in our current time of, of COVID and the restrictions there? Does that change your leadership, leadership style? I don't think it changes it too much. I think sometimes there's a variation on a theme. But to my comment earlier about um, being an authentic leader, if you start doing that, it's a slippery slope to ignoring the uh, the richness that comes from a more collaborative style. So there are certain transactions and, and issues that may be done less collaboratively. For instance, if you're doing a merger or acquisition, that might be a very strategic transaction that requires privacy, commercial and confidence um, aspects. So you may decide that um, there is a not as broad span of control. There is not as broad communication. Uh, I think about the disasters that we've had. And one of the examples clearly in my mind was the global financial crisis where whole funding streams like securitization went away for 10 years may not be quite that long, but um, the organization had to develop. It was a disaster. You didn't change your style because I knew at the time the solution was best achieved through a collaborative approach to finding alternate sources of, of funding. And we did that at Heritage Bank. We focused on the members. We listened to our, our, our 
members and our staff, we built new retail um, products to help us fill the gap that came because, because of the GFC. But when you think about COVID, I think about the fact that 2,200 RACQ staff members were operating successfully at home within a week of calling the, the disaster out of 2,500. So the vast majority of staff were working efficiently and effectively. That required a whole lot of planning collaborative planning to understand how that would affect the, the workload of people and how we looked after their safety at home. So I think uh, there are times when you may want to, for expediency, not have the total breadth of collaboration, but I think it's a slippery slope. And I think that you should try and maintain that as best as possible. And if you do have to, to, to do that, make sure you communicate the rationale for it, because People believe in the in in the solid rationale of an authentic leader uh, when that communication does happen. If you had to sum up all this collaborative leadership style um, and and sort of sell it to our students here at the MBA um, program at USQ, how would you do that? Oh, this is like the elevator pitch. Okay, the um, I think collab- I believe collaborative leadership is hard work, but it's good work. I think it will make you into a better person because you're analyzing your own traits, your values, your strengths, your gaps, your behaviors, um, your focus on the behavioral drivers of a much broader team, um, and understanding what you need to do to focus on others. A lot of people spend time focusing on themselves and their career and their leadership journey. And at the end of the day, focus on others, I think will make you a better person. It also will leave you with an understanding that you are basically allowing people to be as good as they can be to build the the capacity and capability of those people within your team, the organizational team or your direct team. You're creating engaged minds and spirits in a unified team. So coming back to what I said earlier, you know, it's a it's hard work and it's full time, but it's great work. We always end our episodes by asking guests three key questions. The first one is, what do you believe is the difference between leading and managing? I've had this question posed in different forums and I've heard other people answer them. Making out that leading and managing are two totally separate issues and that one is so much better than another because you're a leader, not a manager. And I don't think the question is that simple. I don't think that the aspects of leadership and management are independent. And I don't think that there's a hierarchy between leading and managing. I believe that leadership and management operate in a symbiotic way to achieve a goal or to achieve achieve the, the company's vision. Because if you take management by itself without leadership, you end up failing in some form of a closed system where the project might succeed, but it may be totally irrelevant to where you're going as an organization. If you lead without managing, it makes you feel good, but lacks execution that might come with good management. So I see the symbiotic relationship between leadership and management. There are certain things that happen purely in the management domain in, in any project management or whatever project um, within an organization. You have procedure development, you have scheduling, you have planning, uh, those sorts of things which we we sort of think about as the domain of, of the manager. But I have a simple view that all people, including managers, are leaders so in the list of responsibilities that a manager has, apart from those, those mechanical things I, I talked about, you also have the, 
the, the fact that they have to explain the vision that comes down from the leaders. They need to obtain strategic resources. They need to motivate and inspire their team members. So there's this intersection between management uh, and leadership that I think is really important in that symbiotic relationship. And the other thing is that with leadership, I, I try to break them into two things. One is tactical leadership. And they're those things I just talked about, the fact that they still are inspiring people within their, their management team. They still are doing things to get things done. But there's a thing called strategic leadership, and I think that does need a, a, a totally different skill set. So the skill set we're talking about there is being able to create a vision, to create value within an organization, to lean into strategic risks, to think about the long term, the future. So they're the sorts of things that I think that a senior leader focuses on in relation to the leadership skill set. So I'm breaking leadership into two, the tactical things, which everyone should do as a member of a team, and those things that are more strategic uh, at the front end of the leadership skill set. I'd have to say, John, that's probably one of the most interesting answers we've had to that question um, so far that we asked every everybody. Um, that's very eye-opening for me, certainly. I want to take what you said there and and move on then. If everybody leads in some way, even managers, then what is it, and I think you may have touched on it before, that senior leaders do that's a bit different from, say, management, middle management? Yes. Uh, I, I also think that within this issue of strategic uh, leadership, you, you don't know it all yourself coming back to where I started. So even if a strategic leader has the accountability for doing some of the things I'm going to talk about, they're also reliant upon people within the organization, within the team, from outside the organization to help them with that accountability. So the sorts of things I'm talking about being strategic and the strategic aspects of the the of the the leadership skill sets are about that creating vision, about you know, eventually coming up with the strategic plan. Doing the risk appetite statement. In other words, what are the what's our appetite for taking risk as an organisation uh, to ensure that we are sustainable and successful into the future? It implies a focus on the long term, and that could be five, ten years. At RACQ, we're very much focused on a range of things. At the moment, we're looking at climate risk. What happens in relation to uh, the the impact on Queensland and Queenslanders? If the climate risk goes as it is going over the last 12, uh, 10 years, where we've seen high-grade cyclones move further and further down the coast, what could happen if we don't prepare for that? What if we do prepare for it and find a way to advocate, advocate to government about how do we protect Queenslanders better? So they're the sorts of things strategic leaders do. They have that eye on the future to make sure that they can have the organisation best positioned so that value doesn't erode, but that strategic opportunities are well and truly considered. Excellent, excellent answers there, John. And I really enjoyed our conversation today. So I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the show. As the Chief Executive Officer of Tourism and Events Queensland, Leanne Coddington leads the marketing of our fine, sunny state. Leanne comes from a broad industry experience, including senior executive roles with the Hyatt Hotel Group in both Canberra and Melbourne. Leanne is also an adjunct professor with the Business School at the University of Queensland, a fellow of the Australian Institute of Management and a graduate with the Australian Institute of Company Directors. 
Leanne is joining us on the show to talk about transformational leadership, a leadership style in which the leader inspires employees to create change that will shape the future of a company. How would you define transformational leadership? For me, it's about being people-focused. It's not task or process-focused. It's about creating a vision and a culture that motivates and inspires your team to be their best. That's absolutely true, and it has to be a nimble um, response, doesn't it? They they often talk about transformational leadership in um, Silicon Valley where there's a lot of movement happening, and there has been a lot of movement happening for you this year with COVID. So what are the personal characteristics um, that you have to have to be a transformational leader? I think it's about that influence and motivation. You you need yeah to be able to take people on a journey. So you need to influence them. You have to be able to inspire with a vision and just take a, create that vision, work with the team to create the vision and then inspire people to go on that journey and, and to change along the way. Um, you need to guide the team to see themselves, to see the opportunities themselves and to take on the challenges in a new way and continually support and develop the team. You need to encourage them, give them that support. Well, there's risks all the way along with transformational leadership because you're giving people that ownership and autonomy. Um, You need to give them the space for that and then learn by whatever challenges come along the way. So so there are definitely some um, negative um, possibilities that come out of transformational leadership, but it is something then therefore that you have to manage as part of the transformational leadership approach. Oh, for sure. There's um, you. You're really opening up the uh, uh, to a greater risk appetite. You know, you can be making risky decisions that could negatively impact the organisation if you don't manage that well. And also um, that you can have a big picture vision and know where you want to take the organisation, and it is transformational. But it may have to be a 15 year journey. So you know, then you need to break that down into because if your stakeholders as an organisation, I'm just thinking about one particular major piece of work that we're working on at the moment around our brand and where we're moving Brand Queensland to. And the research clearly shows that where we're taking it to is the right thing to do. We all agree it's the right thing to do. The industry are on board with that vision. But if we move too fast, we'll leave people behind. So it is a 15-year journey. We could probably, if it was just us, and to our point earlier where um, we talked about that TQ doesn't actually sell the product. We are the middleman. Um, if it was our product, if it, if it was our business that we were managing or leading, you could do it quickly. Um, you know, if you a commercial entity can do that very, very quickly. But when you've got a raft of stakeholders that you need to take on a journey, then you you need to plan that out and do it carefully so that you do succeed. Otherwise, you'll end up with failure. How do different situations impact on transformational leadership? We talked about being in COVID at the moment. Has that had a big impact on transformational leadership? Um, it's probably brought it more to the fore, I suppose, but I think it is more pronounced, not so much the transformational leadership, but the impact that it has on the organisation and the, the ability for us to be nimble. You know, when you when you are empowering your team to work remotely, and we've always had remote team members because we've got teams overseas, but when you're empowering your whole team to work remotely and trusting them to deliver, it does take everyone to think, well, you know, I've got to, they've got to understand their purpose. They've got to understand 
why it's so important that they just don't go home and check out, that they've, they've got to keep on working because we're here to deliver for our industry. That takes, I suppose, strong leadership, transformational leadership to empower everyone to do that. Do you have to sort of turn down the transformational leadership in some situations and turn it up in others? Yeah. Um, you know, ensuring that the, that the processes and systems are in place is really, really important. And so the, the, the organisation's got to work functionally to be able to be transformational. I sort of thinking it, think it a bit like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You've got to have the base level needs in place um, and processes and technology and all of those things need to be in place before you can then get people to think more transformationally with innovation, take more responsibility. But, but then there's times where um, if something does go wrong, and I'm not talking across the whole organisation, but again, if, if in a particular area or a particular person you need to come in and manage a particular behaviour or lack of behaviour, then you know, you need to do that. Yeah, so you've got to pick the right leadership style but or the right leadership style for a moment, but in the main, that transformational leadership, I think, is what our organisation would say that's where we are. Especially because your organisation does have to be responsive. Yeah, we we are not the masters of our own destiny. As much as we love to be, we're not. We've got a, an amazing industry, uh, operators all the way from the tip of Cape York to Coolangatta and all the way out to Birdsville and Winton, um, who we are there to support. That's our job is to support them. So, um, yeah, we we need to ensure that we're delivering on their needs. So sometimes the big picture things, the ideas that we have, as I just said, are a long-term journey, that it's not something that you can necessarily just achieve as you would in another organisation where you control your own destiny much quicker. Do you think then that for our students, they have to know what organisation they're in before they can decide whether transformational leadership is going to be right for that position? No, my, my personal bias would be that I think transformational leadership is the leadership for now. Um, I think you just have to be able to pick your moment. I think you can still be a transformational leader in an organisation that probably requires quite operational support at a period in time, but the transformational leadership will allow that organisation to grow and to develop over time. Take us through, take the listener through where you started um, after you after you went to college and then um, the, the sort of leadership roles you've had as you've come up and, and how that's impacted on your CEO um, role at the moment? Yeah, I, um, I did a hospitality degree at the University of Queensland, actually based at Gatton, um, and then got into the hospitality industry. So moved through the industry, working for Hyatt Hotels in quite operational roles in food and beverage and front of house before mo- moving into human resources. And uh, from there, I joined Queensland Tourist and Travel Corporation as human resources manager and have had four careers at Queensland, which is now Tourism Events Queensland, um, over the 20-odd years that I've been with the organisation. So from human resources to research and strategy, uh, partnerships with our industry and now CEOs. So, yeah, so I've grown through that journey um, from quite an operational leader and manager back in the early days of my hotel career through human resources, which I think is where I really learnt that skill about people and how to work with people in the best way and get the best out of people and then, yeah, into my leadership role now. How do you do that? How do you get the best out of people? Oh, you have to give people space. 
Um, you have to inspire them. You need to, as an organisation, to get the best out of people, you need a common vision. And we worked really hard to ensure that we had a vision that everyone bought into. We also have a very strong mission, which is about being consumer-led, experience-focused and destination-delivered, which helps us understand the key aspects of what we do. We need to understand where the consumer of the future is going to be. We need to understand what experiences that they want and then we need to connect that with the destinations of Queensland um, so that our industry um, get the benefit of the first two. Can you tell me what do you think the difference is between leading and managing? Managing is about just looking at the the processes, managing someone on their day-to-day, making sure that the the processes get ticked. It's a bit like having a to-do list and you tick them along. Leadership it's taking people on a journey. Managers are more focused, as I say, on the processes, the administrative tasks, making sure that the day-to-day activities are happening, and that's important. We need that all to happen. But you, transformational is all about the journey. What do you think it means to be strategic? It is about taking that holistic view. It's thinking, yeah, big picture, looking in from the outside, how should things be done, future, you're thinking about the future, you're open-minded to that. It is that higher level, big picture, what do we want to do as opposed to the to-do list that's going to get us there. We have a a motto for our leaders in the organisation that talks about, you know, as a leader we should be brave, strategic and influential. That's our role. Um, We need to be brave. You need to be able to make those tough decisions that, other people don't want to. You need to be strategic where you're thinking outside the box, that you're thinking big picture and long term, but you also need to be influential because if you can't bring people on that journey around those previous two things, then um, you can't be a transformational leader. Leanne Coddington, CEO of Tourism Queensland, thank you for discussing transformational leadership with me on the podcast today. Information about our guests can always be found in the podcast show notes in your podcast app or on the course site. This has been a University of Southern Queensland podcast produced by the Office for the Advancement of Learning and Teaching.